generally speaking, the decisions in my life that I've been most afraid of that I've done have turned out to be the best ones. Moving cross country, doing the ops word deal, things that terrified me that I ended up doing have caused me the most growth and changed my life the most. And that's kind of my current philosophy. Hey, this is the Built in Seattle podcast. I'm Adam Schoenfeld. On this show, I chat with Seattle's best entrepreneurs, operators, and investors about how they think and how they operate. On this episode, I sat down with Michelle Feaster. She's the CEO and co-founder at UserMind. You've probably seen UserMind in the headlines. They've raised about $50 million from big name investors, and they're now landing seven-figure enterprise customers. Michelle's been building enterprise products for about 20 years, first at Mercury, then HP, then she was the VP of products at Aptio. And after 15 years as an operator, she ran toward her fear to found UserMind. We talked about advice she gets from her famous mentor, Ben Horowitz, her fears and struggles when founding UserMind, and we dove into the mechanics of category creation, something a lot of us have read about, but Michelle has actually done it twice. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm sitting here with the one, the only, Michelle Feaster. Hi, thanks, Adam. And we're in UserMind's amazing Pioneer Square office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, very cool. Very, very cool. hip. Very loud right now. Yeah. With 99 coming down. Lots of exposed brick. It's pretty awesome. It's a 100-year-old building, actually. It's a printing building, if you can believe it. There's still a printing press down below us. I love it. It's mm-hmm. very cool. We met about eight years ago. Crazy. Isn't it? We are both so much younger. Neither of us have aged at all, <laughs> no, which is amazing. No, we really, we look amazing. It's the low stress life that we live. <laughs> you have some gray now. I have wrinkles. You know. This is the reason we're doing audio. My gray doesn't have to show. <laughs> I've always been a fan of yours, and I think you're one of the few people in town that I've met that really knows Enterprise. 20 years. 20 years is 20 years. a good chunk of time. <laughs> and yeah. six years into user mind. Can you just start by sharing like the basic stats sure. on where you're at? I like to say we're all the fives, although it doesn't, that was better when we were a five-year-old company. Uh, so we've raised about $50 million, which we raised our Series C maybe two years ago now from some great investors. So Andreessen Horowitz did our Series A, Menlo Ventures did our Series B, and Northgate Capital did the C. Headcount-wise, we're about 55 people. What's the pitch... For user mind to an employee. Sure. Like if I was sitting here for an interview, how do you sell me on coming to work here? Yeah. You know, so we we describe what we do um, as journey orchestration. So that's the unfortunate name that the analysts have come up to describe what we do, which is probably like you have no idea what that is. So when I talk to uh, employees who are interviewing, I ask, you know, is anybody interacting with Comcast or in, you know, trying to set up a bank account? Have you ever had a scenario where you did something online and then had to call the call center and repeat everything you just did and maybe do that multiple times? So the idea of an orchestration platform is that we're essentially invisible. We sit in the background in the enterprise and listen to customer data in real time and then intervene to remove friction or create delight um, in that customer journey. And your customers are those kind of big banks, Comcast mm-hmm. type companies, exactly. Fortune yes. 500. We are classic enterprise software. So we sell to the biggest and most complicated companies globally. Our top vertical is banking, in fact. Uh, but our best verticals are verticals that are being disrupted. So mm-hmm. banking, everybody is probably aware that there's a ton of fintech startups emerging. Healthcare is being disrupted by Amazon and a ton of other startups. Retail 
completely being disrupted by Amazon, utilities being disrupted by deregulation. So our customers are the global 2000 and our best verticals are the ones where they're kind of under threat. I call it an Mm. extinction event, right? Where big companies are kind of being forced to realize that unless they get better at customer experience, they're not going to exist. They're going to be taxis and then there's Uber and Lyft. Wow. That's big time stuff for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. When, when I started, no one knew what I was talking about. Now it's like a pinch yourself moment as a founder when 30% of your meetings, you walk in and people are like, yes, I totally get it. We're going to go out of business unless we improve our experience. Oh, by the way, we know we have a problem around this real time orchestration. So that's when you know you have a company. After (laughs) 15-ish years being a executive in Mm -hmm. high growth companies, you went and became a founder. Yes which is different than a lot of us who just had something wrong in our heads and did that did in it. our 20s. Yeah. And good for you. <laughs> good for, I mean, different, different path to probably learn sure. hard lessons the same way. What got you to want to take this leap and do this? I never would have thought of myself as a founder. In fact, I always thought I was a good like, right-hand person. And my you know, career trajectory was you know, CompuWare and Mercury and HP. And you know, I had a life-changing mentor come into my life. Ben Horowitz becomes my boss. So I led the acquisition of his and Mark's last startup, uh, last software company, Opsware. And he became my boss. And in addition to being one of the best bosses I ever had, he basically said, you know, in shorthand, what are you doing in a big company? You're a crazy founder. Like, why aren't you mm-hmm. in the startup world or building your own company? And so it was very much the voice of a mentor who I really respect and deeply admire and whose judgment I think is incredible. And so I think he said that and that really caused me to rethink what I wanted to do. Did did you ask him why he said that? Like what were the traits (laughs) or qualities or things he saw that made him just say, hey, you're in the wrong place? Um, I did not at the time. I was more just like shell-shocked. I was, because I, you know, I, I wanted to be the CEO of Mercury. That was my goal. If we hadn't gotten acquired by HP, I'd, I wouldn't have left trying to do something different. So I did think I wanted to be a leader and I did think I was a strategist, but I was very much aiming to be the next CEO of a company that I loved and, and loved being part of. So I think, you know, Ben hit me at a time when I was trying to figure out what I really wanted to do or what I should be. In subsequent conversations with uh, him, he says, that you know the best entrepreneurs are the are people who are the intersection of courage and intellect. So you clearly need to be smart enough to be able to find these shifts or have an idea of something better or different. And if you don't have a really good idea, it's kind of tough. Like there's no market, right? Entrepreneurs can't beat the market. But the other thing is you have to be this weird combination of determined and courageous and convinced and also humble. Mm. And I think I, you know, when you say courage, it's like courage of your conviction to like sit in a room with executives and disagree, or is it, you know, courage to like go have an uncomfortable conversation? And I think his, when he says courage, he means kind of all those things. Being an entrepreneur is a struggle with fear. That's been my journey. My first two years, I was, did not know what being a CEO was. And I was just terrified. I'm like, should I micro into this? Should I not? Is this my problem? You know, today, I think I understand my role much, much better. But, you know, I feel like every one of the days of this six years has been being afraid about something different. Mm. So I do think he was right about both those things. But no, I, I mean, he was definitely the reason I did it. And it was funny. I went to Aptio. That was their first investment, largely because I said, hey, I've never even worked in a startup. Right. You know, how the hell am I going to build a startup from scratch if I've never even seen the model? I'd always worked in a larger company where the product existed. So I do think Aptio was like my college education on some level. <laughs> and I learned a ton from doing that. But yeah, no, if he hadn't come into my life, I don't know that I would okay, be doing Okay, so this. before he encouraged you then to go to Aptio as yeah. a step before. yeah. yeah. 
Well, and then when I left Aptio, then I was trying to decide, do I want to go be a product person again or do I want to found the company? And then I encountered another Ben Maxim, but it wasn't said by him in that moment. So I I networked for the first time in my life. When I left Aptio, I literally had coffee with anybody, everybody from you know, two engineers in a, in the, in a garage with their dog, you know, looking for a business founder all the way to like, I was excited about GitHub at a really strong point of view and how I could make GitHub a $10 billion company. And so I tried to convince them to hire me. And so over like, I don't know, two and a half months, I talked to a bunch of different people and kind of the net of it was I didn't really meet anyone I wanted to work for. And so I had this kind of this epiphany moment, which was really, you know, Ben said to me to his quote, cause Ben, there's a Ben quote for everything. Someday you're going to wake up and you can't work for anyone anymore. I'm like, I have to go found a company, but I don't, I don't have an idea. I better get one of those. And then I asked myself, you know, if you really can't work for anyone, why aren't you founding? And the answer was just fear that I was afraid to fail. And once I got really intellectually honest with myself that like, I can't work for anyone. And the only reason I'm not doing it is because I'm afraid that's not a good enough reason. So then I was like, I I called Ben and was like, I'm going to do it. So you just said, I have to just face the fear and and go past that because I I have no other options. I can't go to a company and, you know, screw up someone's company. That's the worst. A founder is killing themselves, you know, and they're going to hire me thinking I can help and I'm going to not help that. That would be terrible. That's, that's ethically wrong. And fear is not a reason not to do anything. Mm -hmm. In fact, generally speaking, the decisions in my life that I've been most afraid of that I've done have turned out to be the best ones. Moving cross country doing the ops word deal, things that terrified me that I ended up doing have caused me the most growth and changed my life the most. And that's kind of my current philosophy. That's good. So you just look for the fear and just lean into it <laughs> at this point. Now ben you just wrote a blog that. post about that called Running Toward Fear. Yeah. Okay, we'll have to look at that. Sorry, I'm just walking instead of Ben Horowitz quotes. Well, I mean, yeah, we've all read hard things about hard things, probably right, people listening in this podcast. Right. And you're fortunate because you get to work with them Isn't he, all the time. That's insane. He's, he's really as cool in real life. Is he as pithy with his insights when he's sitting in the boardroom as he is when he's writing? He is as humble and as genuine, and that's really how he talks. Wow, that's that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I love that story about the transition. What's been a habit that you've had to break or a mm-hmm. thing you've had to unlearn from being a you know operator to now being a founder mm-hmm. coming in at zero? Well, at least one, um, the one that comes to me like, top of my head as you ask that question is, you know, in my role as a head of product, my job was to be very clear and certain about the strategy and to get data. But I was executing a strategy that was not a hundred percent, but in a lot of ways, the ground was set for me. You know, I walked into Aptio and it was already an analytics platform and we were already selling to certain people in IT and they had already decided they were solving a cost transparency problem. So yes, I I was solving and, and I was iterating on the roadmap and I made a huge impact there, but I was really solving second order problems. You know, the first order strategic decisions had already been made. And on some level, this is the beauty of your staff as a CEO is that they don't question those. So one thing as a founder is you have to realize that you are the person who actually sets all those parameters. For me, that was just a very hard adjustment. The level of uncertainty around, you know, I could pivot my persona, I can pivot my vertical. And and you do when you're a leader in a startup or you think you do, but it's just much smaller pivots than what the founder actually does. A founder can literally come in and change the whole company. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think getting comfortable with that level of uncertainty, I had never, I mean, you could, you could argue it's, it's awesome, but I found it terrifying. I mean, this could be totally wrong. So I think kind of like learning that uncertainty is healthy and normal and being able to like sit with it. I don't think, I think I've been used to having more data 
right? Mm -hmm. And having, you know, even in Aptio, I joined, there were 15 customers. I mean, there was like, who am I going to talk to when I'm starting UserMind, right? Right. So I think that experience for me was just different emotionally. It was different skill-wise because I didn't have 15 people to even go interview. I had to like convince everyone to have a coffee with me and just tell me about a day in their life before I even had a problem. So that whole organic process of founding, I had no idea how to do it. And it was really scary and stressful and uncertain to me. And so I would just say, like, for any founder, that's normal. You know, it's what you're going to experience kind of no matter what you do. I can see that because you come in to these other companies and the rules of the game are kind of set. Right. Like you're changing things within that context. But in this case, you have to set the rules and then prepare that next quarter you might totally change the rules like you did with your positioning. 100%. So, and by the way, that's the other thing that was very interesting to me that I've really reflected on as a founder and CEO is... There's this dichotomy, I feel like, in entrepreneurs and founders uh, who are successful, this ability to switch between conviction and complete humility in like the blink of an eye. So on the one hand, I don't think to get up every day, you have to be convicted. You know, I really believe that journeys are a transformation of companies. And I believe you should do more than measure NPS and you should get into the business of like real-time orchestration or your company is going to go out of business. So I'm extremely convicted about the idea and the transformation on the other side, you have to be able to go to a meeting and maybe you're really wrong about your segment or maybe some of the features you envisioned that people you thought they would need are wrong. And somehow, and I don't, I just think it's a very, I think that's very hard, you know, because in our minds we conflate the two. Well, if my feature's wrong, then the idea must be wrong. Mm -hmm. And I just do think the best founders somehow are able to switch between like, what are the decisions I need to have conviction on and stick to whether people agree or disagree with me? And then where do I need to be completely humble and be open that my idea or thought or hypothesis is wrong? And I don't know that there's, you know, some secret to that, but that also surprised me because we portray, you know, founders as being like Steve Jobs and always oh, having to, the right answer, right? right? Yeah. Um, and it's true. You, I think you have to know which ideas that you have to fight for and like you'd never compromise on, but also so much of execution is in the details where maybe 10% of your idea, you have to fight for it to the death and 90% can be shaped by others and data and reality. I don't know what that balance is, but that was very eye-opening to Have me. you had to change or how have you changed to have that humility oh. to balance out your, hum- your conviction? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, it's so now I'm not the head of product anymore. And that's an interesting evolution. I'd be interested in your journey as CEO, but it's taken me a while to figure out what my job as CEO is. It is my job to hold the things in the company that can't be changed and to be have real clarity on what those are. And then everything else to dramatically empower others in the company to make every other decision. Because the pace of change of the company is the pace of our decision making. So I think that's part of why I was reflecting a lot on this kind of dichotomy or this you know, is where do you need to know that you can't compromise and where do you need to just empower other people to make all the decisions? Mm -hmm. Is that my role has changed as a CEO as the company's gotten a little bigger. But I don't know that I have, I don't know that I have any good answers. I know that six years in, I'm much more comfortable with the uncertainty. Mm -hmm. You know, I've learned that the risk is normal. In Ben's book, he says the number one job of a CEO is to manage your own psychology. And I think I've gotten to the point where (laughs) like the gremlins at the base of my brain aren't driving the bus anymore, which is, I wish I could like go back to the beginning of the company and be me now. It takes a while to tame them, right? Yeah, right. I mean, it was a crazy, so for any founder who's out there, you know what we're talking about. And if you haven't found it, you're just like, this is another language. Um, It's been, it's been quite, quite a journey. Um, Yeah, it seems to be getting more more attention now, this whole idea of that we're not all gonna 
act inside our companies the way that Elon Musk or Steve Jobs look 100%. when they're on stage. Yeah. And I had Glenn Kelman on the podcast, mm. CEO at Redfin. Mm. He talked a lot about this humility and kind mm-hmm. of assuming that you're wrong and letting mm-hmm. yourself be wrong and mm-hmm. shame. And like, mm-hmm. that's part of the process, mm-hmm. which takes us a lot of time. But oh, yeah. it's a crazy balance to think yeah. that you've got to come in and be like, this is the direction we're going and run full speed. And then say, and by the way, I might be wrong about nine 100%. out of 10 things I'm saying. Well, look, on that note of shame, the other thing is people hold you up as the CEO. So if I'm afraid to be wrong and I'm ashamed, and this happened early at UserMind, I would say like in the first year, we did not build a good engineering culture. And, and it wasn't because our intentions weren't good. But as an example, when you as the founder expect yourself to be perfect and blame yourself, everyone around you internalizes that. And then they're afraid to be wrong. And then people can't come to you and say, hey, we like use the wrong platform, you know, whatever technology or, or like our first design sucked or we built it and it's not scaling, you know, the best. So to me, if I really were to reflect six years in startups are basically learning machines, that's what they are. And hopefully you're as close to right as you can be. And, and like, if you're slack and the closer to right you are, then you're hyper growth. But if we're not all that, then we need to like learn our way to the right answer as fast as possible. And so really as a founder, in addition to knowing what can't be compromised, your real job is to build a learning machine around you. And at least for me, man, I wish I could teleport back to the beginning of the company because I think all of my fears and my needing to be perfect came out unhealthily inside the company and blocked other people from being, a- and not because even I would say that verbally necessarily, but you know, the best and healthiest companies are one where the team is bringing me ideas. They sat on a customer call and they're super excited. And then my job is just to recognize what a great idea that is. Or like, you know, we, we had some, we've had recently a couple customer escalations and the, and the leadership team did a retro and there's a bunch of stuff on the whiteboard behind me of what they're going to go do. And like, how healthy is that? That everybody was like, we want to be more accountable and we, we don't want to have, you know, issues, you know, we had some quality issues on some features we released for, and one of our customers missed a campaign deadline as a result. And to see them just be so like committed and accountable, that's healthy culture. You know what I mean? Totally. That's the magic. Yeah. But I did not, you know, I guess maybe that's another learning is I did not realize how my own inner shaming and blaming need to be perfect. My own attachment to that, like perception of what I thought I had to be the impact on the team and the culture. So hopefully, hopefully my own inner freedom is creating more room for other people in the company today. Totally. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I, I wish I had had those lessons earlier on. Hopefully there's somebody listening who oh gets that God, and is like, right? Oh, maybe I can start doing this practice yeah, now. Earlier. Yeah. Right? Earlier. Gosh. But it's certainly, yeah, it's part of the struggle, right? Isn't, is that not what, what Ben calls it in the book? Calls it yeah, the struggle. struggle. Yeah. I know you've talked a lot about category creation Mm -hmm. before all of us read Play Bigger, which kind of blew up, what, in the last couple of years? Well, you know, I know Lockhead well. We worked together at Mercury for eight years. That's right. Yeah, he was a Mercury I kind of learned at his knee this idea of categories. Before he published the book and everybody read it. Long before he published the book. And I, you know, I took that idea, obviously, in Aptio and then Usermind. Yeah. So maybe we can talk a little bit about how you how that went in Aptio, and then mm. we can transition and talk some of the learnings that you Yeah, look, one, for people on, who are listening to the podcast who don't know, like, what, what is category creation and why does it matter? So, you know, in the world, um, there are people called analysts who tell other people what to think, uh, and they divide technology markets up into categories, into spaces, and they put vendors in them. And for an existing category, something like monitoring software, it's constantly changing. You know, now we see Datadog just went IPO and SignalFX gets acquired by Splunk and maybe HP OpenView still, 
you know, hanging around. So there's many founders who are basically building technology that's better or different inside an existing category of spend. And the benefit that you have is the buyer is clearly identified. The problem you have is that the price point's already set. And if the price point's set at, you know, $1,000 a year, it's really difficult to innovate your way into getting someone to pay you 100x that. So the benefit of category creation is the reverse. There is no identified buyer and there is no identified budget. And no one really knows they need your thing because they don't buy one or they don't, haven't bought one already. But the flip side is you get to set the price point. So if what you want to do is um, kind of one, build a, a, a material software company, two, if you want, if your expertise, which mine is, is an enterprise and selling kind of direct large price points, and three, you have the patience to kind of gut it out while the category is getting formed, you have a lot more control over your end destiny. And, and, you know, people have asked me, like, how do you know something is a category or isn't? I like to say categories are created when multiple disruptions are hitting the same persona or personas at the same time. So if, if it's like, hey, there's some guy or person and, you know, Kubernetes is arriving, that might not be enough, one change. So in, in customer experience, when, when I look at kind of our world, why is it that a category, in my mind, is inevitably going to be created? One is the competitive landscape is exploding. So essentially, the cost of capital has gone to zero, and every big enterprise has some startup coming after them to take their market share with like a better UI. So that's thing one. Um, thing two is the front office has been buying a ton of tech for the last 10 years. And so the, the number of technology channels has exploded to the point where it's kind of hard to solve with humans. So complexity has risen beyond a point where you can do nothing. And third, there's an emerging persona called the chief digital officer, which is kind mm -hmm. of bringing marketing and technology together. So if any one of those things were happening independently, you probably don't have a category. But when you look at it, the digital team you know, literally the company might go out of business if they don't figure out how to be great at digital. There's a new buyer whose job it is to solve these end-to-end -end problems. And the complexity is exploded beyond the point where existing approaches work. And then you have an opportunity for a category. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that creates the, the foundation where you can go create a category. Yeah. And I like your thing that it, it basically lets you set the price, which mm -hmm. is a very simple way of justify it because mm -hmm. you hear a lot of other marketing speak around why you'd create a category. Yeah. But in enterprise... So you, you get to set the price. Well, you get to set the value. No and, one else is. And you get the pain of establishing the value. But and, and how does that then play through the rest of the whole economic engine that you create? Because mm. I, I assume there's some philosophy that once you set the price, everything else works and looks better. What's kind of the downstream impact of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the price, like the kind of problem you're solving. So at UserMind, when you think about customer experience and you optimize customer experience, you're, you're really talking about either top line revenue, we're going to increase your top line revenue as a company, we're going to increase your customer's lifetime value, or we're going to basically deflect calls. And at big companies, those numbers are in the millions or tens of millions. So if you look at setting the price for UserMind, I said, hey, when you think about this technology problem, I found a technology gap, but really the business value of solving that problem is in the millions to hundreds of millions for a big company. The opportunity is why would I sell that product for a hundred grand when I can sell it for seven figures? And in fact, last quarter, we just did our first seven figure deal, which I think is going to be representative. It's going to look much more like the user mind of the next 
next five years than the user mind of the last mm -hmm. five years. As you know, the entire company is architected around your price point. If you're selling a half million dollar software, then you have direct salespeople who are in the field, you have pre-sales people, you have SDRs. You know, the engine you build looks really different than if you've got a 50K model. So if your hypothesis is that you're going to build a category and your price point is going to be an enterprise price point, 250, 500, a million, your entire go-to-market machine is architected to those assumptions. That's kind of what user mind mm -hmm. looks like. Well, congrats on getting to those seven-figure <laughs> deals. That's super exciting. Yeah, considering my first check ever was like 15K. Um, oh, that's huge. That's yeah. huge. I love hearing that. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're able to set the price, right, which is different than if other players had already come in, Amen. then you'd have to price based on what they do. Can we talk about Aptio and how Aptio created a category? Yeah, that was an amazing opportunity. So I, for people who don't know what Aptio is, Aptio was a, an analytics platform, or is, and it still exists, an analytics platform that was designed to help the CIO answer the question of what are the costs quality and value of the IT services I'm delivering to the business. You know, when I joined, kind of two things. One, the price point was like 50K. And I literally, I think the company had done maybe 15 deals at that point. And so I literally went and interviewed every rep, every pre-sales person and every customer and kind of built a matrix. And the net learning was essentially below VP, you don't really carry an MBO for cost reduction. So we can go and sell these people cost transparency, but they don't really live or die whether the company saves money on the cost of email or the cost. So kind of one uh, big takeaway that I had was we had to go and sell to the CIO or the VP of finance or the VP of ops because the value of Aptio really couldn't be appreciated or prioritized when you went too mm -hmm. low into the organization. So there was a problem. There was an urgent reason to solve it. We figured out who the personas were. And then let's talk about the category. So here's the deal. We were doing fancy IT finance. We were like giving hmm. you the cost of IT services. So in theory, you should be selling that technology to the finance organization. The problem is if you, and there was already a, a market that was emerging being called IT financial management. And we were determined to not be in that space because if we were selling this thing to the head of finance to manage the cost of IT, that was a 50K product. And so we had a lot of conversation around the vision and strategy of the company and kind of what problem did we want to solve. And, and the problem that we wanted to solve was that it wasn't just about cost. It was around the fact that the CIO didn't really have the capability to make business trade-offs in their portfolio. And so we wanted to show the cost to him or her, but to also show you know, the operational uh, availability and the value of the service. And, and that would elevate us to be a technology for the CIO to manage the portfolio of IT and to kind of get a seat at the table, if you will, at a company and to help IT elevate out of being a pure technology function into being a value-add business function. And so that was the narrative and the words mattered and the category mattered. And so we were really determined it wasn't going to be financial management. And so we tested a bunch of different category names with our customers and landed on technology business management. And the idea was it's not just about cost. It's about quality cost and value trade-offs and that no IT organization would survive over the next 20 years if they couldn't have those business conversations with their constituents and customers. I and mean, it's pretty crazy. I mean, today there's, you know, there's a TVM council, they've written a hmm. book. I heard that the last customer event, they had like 2,000 people there. Wow. And I remember the very first time I got up and we, we built a deck, what we called a POV, our, our deck on our narrative of why this what we were going to do and why it was going to be important. And so it's pretty crazy to think that like this idea that we decided to double down on and, and 
the narrative that we were going to go take to market today is like broadly accepted and the analysts call it a category and thousands of people describe themselves as TBM practitioners. It's kind of crazy. It's amazing. Well, yeah. what a signal if they now have that in their bio or job title yeah. that it's actually been created. Crazy, isn't it? That's unreal. Right? You build a company, but you change the way companies work. You've introduced a completely new perspective. Between interviewing all the customers and the reps when sure. you had 15 deals. <laughs> and I built and, my little PowerPoint. And having the point of view deck that you presented yeah. in front of everybody that yeah. kind of became the category. Yeah. What's the sausage making that goes on there? Yeah. The first thing that came out of that set of interviews was what I call a play deck, which is like, you know, we weren't really selling a single thing. We were actually selling quite a different value proposition. So if you went to you know, some CIOs, they really wanted to articulate the cost to their customers. And so we'd call mm -hmm. that a bill of materials. And then there was another selling motion, which was all about cost reduction and, and mm -hmm. kind of benchmarking. And then there was a completely different kind of motion around financial planning. And so the first thing we identified was like, what were we selling? What, what were the existing current motions? And so, and then the POV discussion became, what's the unique and distinctive story that we have to tell? And basically our story to the CIO was, you are becoming a service provider. No one cares about your servers. No one cares about storage. What your, what your business customers who are getting IT services care about is, are the services available? Are they cost effective? Are they secure enough? And that just really boiled down to like, does the CIO really have anywhere they can go or any trusted provider who helps them have those conversations? Mm -hmm. And then it was like, well, what are the motions that are working today? And then it was, who's our aspirational buyer? And then the deck was really the narrative. What's the story? If we met with you know another Rebecca tomorrow, what is the story that we're going to tell him or her that's personal, that mm -hmm. makes it necessary, urgent for them to buy Aptio and not do nothing? Because in category creation, your biggest competition is do nothing. Right. Right? No one knows they need right. what you want. It's not like there's a competitor in there, usually at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the four-step process that we used. And there, you know there was a bunch of, I think really interesting small steps. When we built that draft deck, we had a little advisory council that we created. Sonny is a genius at this, the CEO of Aptio. And we took our deck to them and we pitched them a bunch of different category names. In fact, our we thought it was going to be ITBM. And all of them just puked on it. And we're like, <laughs> no, it's, you know, we don't want to be IT anymore. We want it to be TBM. Uh -huh. So, you know, it was, it was pretty iterative. We tried to be as data-driven as we could. Okay, um, so you didn't just go blast this thing onto the Newswire and Gartner. Well, no, and nobody Gartner. would care. Right. You did this hard work and this rigor of uh -huh. talking to customers and then one by one by one. 100%. Sort of built it up. 100%. And then how long did that take until you had the name and you were like, okay, we need to go tell this to the broader community? That probably took us six months or something. It wasn't like years. Yeah. It wasn't days. You know, it took a bit of time to kind of collect the original data. And then some of it was actually just getting the executive team aligned and then testing. And I'm sure if people read Play Bigger, it's a pretty big bet and it pays off over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. It's not going to pay off over, at least in my right. experience, over six months. I mean, certainly, certainly paid off for Aptio, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Had a successful outcome with Vista Amazing. buying the company. Yeah. And what was the price on that oh god publicly disclosed and it's over a billion it was yeah, yeah. a big number yeah what are the principles that you've kind of applied at user mind and category creation from aptio and are there mm -hmm. any that you tweaked or did differently <laughs> from the well number one it's much harder to do this if it's your baby so i feel like it was much easier <laughs> for me to be the head of product helping doing this for someone else where you're just passionate 
You know, it's interesting. So I describe UserMind when I did, when I started the company, I don't have a CX background. I don't have a marketing background, mm-hmm. right? I'm, a t- I'm an IT person. I've been building technology from IT. So when I started the company, I just did a couple hundred interviews. My hypothesis was basically going forward, the business would buy more technology than IT. It would all be SaaS. It would all be subscription and every subscription product would have an API because it's really hard to drive adoption and, and get renewals. And so like APIs are a shortcut to renewals. Mm-hmm. And I identified these personas, marketing operations, sales operations as like, hey, it's like a mini IT function. And so I didn't have a hypothesis around CX or journeys. I just identified a persona who I thought was new and underserved. And I went and interviewed a bunch of them. And I heard, uh, actually, it didn't help with the category. I heard a bunch of like bottoms up feedback. And the feedback I heard was, hey, yes, we have a ton of these different systems. No, they don't connect together. And of course, I'm an IT nerd, remember? So I, what I heard from them was really important workflows start to break down. So like lead to customer, I don't know what my funnel is. Or like customer onboarding journey, I don't know where my customers are in that journey. But I didn't know the word journey. So I just thought, wow, there's a really hard technology problem that's around integration. And if somebody could solve it, there's actually quite a large business outcome because these workflows, as I thought of them then, are really important. They actually drive revenue and drive lifetime value. And so I thought, wow, I found a really hard technology problem because how many successful integration companies have there been? What, MuleSoft? I mean, like, there haven't been 100. It's very hard. Uh, So very hard technologically, which means you, you could defend your cat, like you could defend your moat. And the person who solved this and actually helped improve these workflows would actually drive top line outcomes. And I thought, whoa, hard technology problem, very big business impact. And it didn't seem to me anybody was focused on this at all. Hmm. And so that was what excited me, you know, underserved persona, really defensible technology problem, really big business outcome if I solve the problem. So I, my co-founder and I literally built a little prototype, took it out to people, no POV, no category, no nothing, just like, hey, talk, talk to us. People were super excited. And I remember we had our alpha and we probably had five or six customers on the platform. And I hired, he's at Ookla now, Jamie. And I said, hey, I'm really having trouble telling the story of my company because I'm so inside out. And he came in and worked with me and he said, why don't you try, build two different decks. Deck one is like your integration problem story. Deck two is let's tell it customer in. What is a customer's life like Mm. if they um, experience a company where your problem statement is true? And we, so we built kind of two little lightweight decks and took it around to people and people were like, wow, that outside in story, that's the story. And that's when we started to adopt the word journeys and, and really realized that like journey was a strategic concept and we should pitch the company as this outside in CX type company. That's interesting. So it was a little bit more like a lean startup approach of, you know, like find your persona and Mm -hmm. find this problem, but then it it expanded out versus Aptio kind of went the other way. hundred percent. Yeah. So it was a really, that was a pit, that was a turning point, obviously, in, in, you know, in the life of the company. I would say the other thing about UserMind is that I was really determined that I probably got right. So I got the positioning wrong. I didn't realize it was journeys. (laughs) I didn't realize it would be CX. I was kind of excited about this technology problem. But turns out in our space, most of the people we're competing with are marketing automation companies who've pivoted into our space. In our big verticals, the fact that we did build a platform, the fact that we can integrate to like homegrown systems, the fact that it is a real workflow engine and it can like, we can track, you know, a workflow over years in user minds. All these things have actually paid off quite a lot downstream. And as the category itself unfolds, there's a lot of real differentiation in our core platform. It's going to pay off quite a lot 
over the next five years. Some things we got right, many things we got wrong. And I knew there would be a category, but I totally described it wrong. I needed right. a me, right? Sunny had me. I have Jamie. So there you go. <laughs> anyway. Right. Well, that, that's super interesting to see yeah. the two unfold in their own yeah, paths. Yeah. And like the, the thing that totally started different. the conversation was so different. Yeah. Well, and you're at Drift, which is like yet another example yeah. of kind of the master and his entire company was predicated on this the shift in marketing. So I think there's a lot of ways to do it. You need the right elements and recipe, yeah. you know, to be successful. Right. Um, and you need to say something that's true in the world and 100%. that the shift that you're describing can't be made up, yeah. which I think a lot of people do. And then they... They get the opposite effect, which is nobody believes their category and it's 100%. worse. By the way, the other thing I would say is, um, so part of why I think David, you know, Cancel could could start Drift with such a strong alignment between vision and story is he is a marketer and came from HubSpot. You know, I'm a technology founder who kind of, an IT person who kind of stumbled into this CX market and I had to learn the language. And a category is a language of storytelling. Mm -hmm. To your point, it better be real. There better be a big shift and your technology better be relevant and it has to hang together to, for people to buy it. But I think, you know, one of my challenges is I, I understood the language of IT. I could help Sonny sell to an CIO, but I actually needed a lot of help from real marketers to teach me how to articulate this transformation. Because while I might have understood the technology challenges, I really wasn't the perfect founder to like translate it into a narrative. Mm -hmm. I needed, I needed help with that, mm -hmm. but nothing wrong with that. But you had the rigor on the, did the hundred interviews and deeply understood the technology. Challenges. I found so the right shift. The story. We built the right technology, but a category needs narrative. And so, right. Yeah. Right. And I mean, there's been a lot of people now that start with that narrative and then kind of fill in, but you can, your proof, you can kind of go out in either direction, right? <laughs> oh, look, they have to hang together. To your point, yeah. if it isn't real and it isn't now and people don't need it and there's no mega shift, the narrative is irrelevant. I think the narrative is the easier thing. If that's the gap, it's better. This is phenomenal. I want to wrap up with the Supersonic Six. <laughs> okay. Got to have a corny name for a Seattle podcast. It's all good. It's all um, good. To be mindful of your time. Yeah. So you can take as long as you want to answer, but they're okay. kind of rapid fire questions. Yeah. First one is, what's the one thing that Seattle needs to improve as a startup hub? Oh my God. Capital. Access to capital. I mean, I'm such a big believer. I have no money from the from Pacific Northwest. It's all Bay right. money. And it's all Bay money because they just take bigger risks. So I, I wish that more bay investors invested here and i wish there were more there's more more and more local capital for everybody okay if you could go back to the beginning would you still found your company in seattle oh yeah 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 i love it here this is my home one i like the culture here it's more down to earth so mm -hmm. i feel like startups in the bay were like juicero or or like everyone <laughs> it's like clinkle you know i'm we're changing the world and I'm kind of like, you know, I think what I'm doing is amazing and I think it'll make so many people's lives better with customer experience, but it's not solving world hunger. So there's some amount of posturing for me in the Bay that just didn't work. So yeah, for just cultural reasons, I would do it again. But look, I also think that our, for our children to have prosperity, we need more than one Bay Area and it only takes two. So once there's two, there can be a hundred. So I'm a big kind of a vocal speaker about how we all need to make Seattle the next Silicon Valley of startups of exits because then money can go anywhere in the United mm -hmm. States. And that's the secret of prosperity is kind of, to me, technology prosperity. Mm -hmm. So we can be the, the community that gets it to two and, and then, then it sort of And then Austin and, and New York yeah. and Boston. I love that. I hadn't heard it said that way before. Yeah. Number three, who's a Seattle company or founder that you're following or studying right now? 
Oh, I think Manny Medina at Outreach is pretty amazing. He's uh, super intense. I bumped into him at a couple local events and I really admire his like singular focus and his belief in how big and transformative his company can be. And maybe it's because I had a lot of self-doubt in my first two years or have had, you know, a number of issues. You know, we've had to kind of rewrite parts of the product once and I've made mistakes in hiring people on the leadership team. Maybe it's because I live with my own self-doubt, but I just have so much admiration for his level of conviction and his force of personality um, that I feel like if I could get 10% more of the Manny Medina inside Michelle Feaster, you know, user mind would be more successful. So huge props to Manny. Well, I've had him on the podcast, and don't forget that they pivoted after two years of I know, he told almost shutting down the first rev of the company. I know, but still. I, I do love Manny, and his energy is unreal. It's pretty amazing. Number four, what's a truth that you know or believe, but other people think is wrong or crazy? I think that you can't be a good CEO without work-life balance. So I don't work on the weekends for the most part. I do if there's a board meeting or I'm trying to close a candidate or I'm raising money. And there's exceptional times when I do. But I'm very introverted and I can't work 24-7. And I think that there's definitely this bizarre kind of societal expectation or Silicon Valley expectation that CEOs should just be always on. And I think it's unhealthy and it sets the wrong tone for your team. So... I don't know if that's controversial, but... Don't buy into that, that you have to work seven days a week to be successful CEO. Not at all. Number five, what do you know today that you wish you'd known when you started UserMind? (laughs) And we just talked about a few of them. You know, one I have not shared, I wish I knew how important hiring was. So I think like the number one skill of an entrepreneur and founder is assembling a team or the number one job, besides raising money, having you have to raise money, have to have a good idea, and you have to hire a team. And I was not very good at knowing what was I looking for. You know, I was too focused on skills as opposed to culture and and intangibles. So for sure, man, if you can get great at interviewing, you're going to be a massively more successful CEO and entrepreneur. Last one, number six, Mm -hmm. what ask do you have for this audience? What can folks out there do to help you? Anyone in the Seattle area who, you know, wants advice on fundraising or is trying to found, if I can, I'll make time. And then, you know, if you are in a big enterprise company and can help us, you know, we, we need the main way you create a category is by making wildly successful customers. So. All right. Thank you. Amazing stuff. I love talking with you as always. My pleasure. Um, I've learned a lot today. So for people who want to follow you or keep in touch, what's mm-hmm. the best place? Is it Twitter? Is it LinkedIn? Is it email? What's the best channel for <laughs> Oh, email is probably the best. It's just Michelle at UserMind, M-I-C-H-E-L. I'm on Twitter. It's at Michelle Feaster. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm assuming it's at Michelle Feaster. But, you know, I'm not super socially. There's, you know, see, some CEOs are more social media savvy. I'm, I don't particularly spend a ton of time on social media. I much prefer to go get a coffee or chat one-on-one. Perfect. Thanks for being here. Would you like to drop the mic? <laughs> I will drop Hold the on. mic. Drop the mic. Boom. Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> You're more than welcome.